Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Time is money, as we like to say on this podcast, don't we, Neil? Definitely, yes. And brevity is wit. And our guest this week is someone who not only knows a great deal about the price of time, but also has an impressive sense of timing. Edward Chancellor's first book, Devil Take the Hindmost, on financial speculation, was published just before the bursting of the dot-com bubble in 2000. Now he's published The Price of Time, a history of interest rates, Just as monetary policy around the world is tightening and threatening to tip many countries, including our own, into recession. Along with taking an entertaining tour through the highways and byways of compound interest from the time of the Babylonians, the book issues a stern warning about the dangers of loose monetary policy or setting interest rates too low. Eddie, welcome back to A Long Time in Finance. Good to have you back. Nice to see you both. I just wanted to start. In your book, you basically argue that many of the problems we have, low productivity, impossibly expensive houses, a bloated financial sector, all stem from our decision to keep interest rates too low. Perhaps you can explain how you believe you can tell they've been too low and how you attach all these ills to them. When I embarked on this book, it was really because I was concerned about the state of the financial system and the economy. And I thought that you could really only understand what was going on by having a you know picture of what these very low interest rates of the last decade were actually doing. In the book, I, I try and look at interest across a number of different dimensions. Conventionally, the central bankers only think about the interest rate movements relative to inflation or, or deflation. But I argue that there are a number of other things that interest influences. To start with, it affects how capital is allocated, the movement of resources from low return investments or businesses to higher returns. But as I also point out, with very low interest rates, you get an incentive to invest in projects with very long dated returns. I would argue that, or I do argue that the unicorns of Silicon Valley many of which are just specious speculations, are a zombie company. So there's this misallocation of capital. But then, Jonathan, as you and I know, as particularly those of us who worked in corporate finance at the beginning of our our careers, is the, the, the discount rate that one uses for valuing streams of future income has a huge impact on your current value, on, on what, what we call the, the net present value. So it seems to me no coincidence that the US stock market has exhibited some of the highest valuations in history, with the only exception of the peak of the dot-com bubble in 99-2000. Eddie, could I just pick you up on the point that you made about low interest rates encourage speculative businesses? But surely low interest rates are a great incentive for taking a longer view. And that, presumably you would agree, is a good thing rather than a bad thing. No, I mean, Neil, that's a good point. You can take too short a view and you can take too long a view. Too long a view 
is investing in in a business whose returns lie too far out in the distant future and perhaps don't even exist at all. So the point, really, the point you're making is not that these businesses are necessarily terrible investment opportunities. We just don't know whether they are or not. It's more that the, the stock market or the private investment market is misvaluing them or encouraging people to pour money into ventures far more than a rational world would devote to these activities, whether building fraudulent electric vehicles or Uber or whatever it might be. Not well, that yeah. that's a fraudulent I mean, but as, as you know, when writing about, the, when I'm talking about the misallocation capital in, in tech ventures, I, I cite some venture capitalists around, you know, 2014, 2015, telling the economists that this was, you know, the best time to, to be financed since, you know, the ancient Egyptians. And then mm. if you read the books by you know, Silicon Valley's insiders, they're not really building, building businesses. And I, I should say here, you know, Jonathan and I were you know, involved in a, a dot-com startup back in 2000. I, I think we might, I might extinguish that from the record. Really. No, 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 no. That uh, was, that well, was a well, rare case I, of a valuable I mean, one, I think. I think <laughs> what I one think of the, more, more. the tech insiders who, whose book I read said is that you know, the business was to solve for the... Solve for the uh, for the IPO. It's 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 about solving for capitalization, not not. That's not necessarily something which is confined to bubbles or whatever you care to call them. It's happening all the time. You look at the IPOs recently in London, and some of them have collapsed within a year of coming to to market. Exactly, so this is just part of the part of the the warp and weft of markets. No, I don't really think that's got anything to do with interest rates anyway. Yes, yeah, so, but what I'm arguing in the book is that you can set aside your behavioural finance aspect of the bubble and you can also set aside the sort of abuse of conflicts of interest that investment bankers and others engage in when they're during bubbles. I'm trying to draw attention to the relationship between the bubble or the perspective euphoria and the monetary underpinnings. So I want to pull the lens back and explore a bit what you think the Fed should have done and your assessment of why it didn't do what it should have done. Yeah, the slightly evasive answer is one shouldn't really have been starting from that position in that the global financial crisis, in my reading, was engendered by the Fed's initial response to the dot-com bust led the Fed to take the Fed funds rate down to 1% in 2002, engendering the global credit boom. But leaving that aside, there is an argument for the central bank to act as lender of last resort during a crisis, which I discuss in the book, the so-called Badger Doctrine, that a a central bank should lend against high-quality collateral at high interest price, that's the point. That's classic budget. Yes, and, and what I argue is that the budget doctrine, it was confined to the crisis period. And what we saw is that the Fed expanded the this uh, budget doctrine to lending against low-quality collateral at low rates of interest, which was made, you know, certain few insiders a great deal of money when the markets recovered in 2009. But they also continued these policies. So, you know, up until this year, we were still getting quantitative easing. Now, just to be clear for listeners here, quantitative easing 
is where the central bank steps in and purchases government or other bonds from financial institutions, puts them on its own balance sheet, and by doing so, pushes down the level of interest rates in the economy. It brings us to Jonathan's question, why do you think they continued with it at a time when the crisis was passed? I think that they, you know, that the financial markets were sort of hooked on it. And that whenever there was any question of withdrawing the liquidity and normalising monetary conditions. Yeah. So I just want to go back to my original question, how to avoid having the hangover in the first place. And basically, you've not sort of wholly addressed the question of, is there a way in which we can identify the right level of interest at any particular juncture? And is it therefore perverse of central banks that they have for a long period ignored this clear signal and proceeded with a policy of keeping interest rates at a rock bottom level and storing up all the problems you've just described? Yeah, I I think there is. I'm critical in the book at the policy of setting a an inflation target, which you know most central banks nowadays set at around two percent. As you know, I, I, I argue that they massively exaggerate and misunderstand the risks of deflation and the nature of deflation. There is you know such a thing as a good deflation, just as there's such a thing as good cholesterol. And good deflation comes from productivity improvements and falling prices. The man on the street doesn't complain about a good deflation. In fact, no one really complains about a good deflation, except for the central bankers who use it as an excuse to take interest rates down. And I would say there's no, there's no particular level below which interest rates should fall. But it seems to me, and I'm going back to Walter Badgett again, problems <laughs> invariably start to come when interest rates fall below 2%. The attraction, of course, of an inflation target, is it something that ordinary mortals can understand? A lot of the things which you claim are more important indicators are really beyond the understanding of many people, if not most people. And I think that you're in danger of advocating something which will be lost in complexity and misunderstanding when the well, bank has to raise you know, interest rates. We, we live in a complex world. If, if you try and put a simple and misleading target in a complex world, and when you're dealing with a phenomenon, interest, which I argue is you know the universal price, the single most important price in the capitalist system, if for the sake of simplicity, which sounds to me a rather patronising notion, but if for the sake of simplicity you impose a target, you are going to have all sorts of problems. And that's what we've seen. Well, I would push back on that and say that uh, <laughs> they, I don't accept that. And I think that uh, the, the bank's problems in the last two or three years has been that they failed to see what was going to happen to inflation. They failed to see the result of what they were doing, which is why they kept interest rates far too low for far too long. If we wanted to come to an agreement, we could just change the time frame. You you were earlier mooting that it would be nice to work with a long time frame. I'd be perfectly happy to work with a long time frame and and try to think of of delivering price stability over the long term. And you you deliver price stability over the long term by avoiding asset price bubbles and credit booms that end in deflation and require a lot of monetary 
priming to get out of, and that monetary priming sooner or later feeds through to an inflation. I think the failure of the central banks in recent years, it directly follows from their inflation targeting. Is there an era in which central banks, in your view, broadly followed the right policy with regard to the setting of interest rates? And is therefore the kind of uh, error into which they have fallen the result of inflation targeting? Or do you think there's something more fundamental, which is central bankers just think that they'll be terribly unpopular if they keep rates high for a long time, and therefore they shy away from this horrible kind of uh, medicine? It is. So so the, well, first of all, I think of the history of sterling over the last century, which has lost, what, sort of 99.5% of its value. (laughs) Clearly, and that has, that hasn't all happened in the last year. So clearly something has has gone wrong if one cares about price stability. But there is a price to pay for price stability, namely in the 19th century when the central bankers didn't really think, it didn't have an active monetary policy. All it did was seek to maintain the convertibility of its banknotes, of sterling banknotes, into gold. And that required it to raise interest rates whenever the Bank of England stock of gold w- w- was low. So and that's a, a pretty harsh system, but it, 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 it delivered price stability, but with a lot of financial crashes. You either have you know, these sort of harsh crashes and price stability, or you have these attempt to avoid the financial downturns and the loss of monetary stability. And, and for all this talk of inflation targeting, it should be clear to everyone now that the central banks have, have failed in the, in the remit to deliver price stability. I mean, it's, it's self-evidently true with, in, with uh, inflation in double figures in the UK. Yes, and it, and it may be, as Jonathan says, a sort of slightly political point is that the people who are hurt by low interest rates are, the, so to speak, the forgotten man or woman, whereas the people who benefit, the people who, are, who, who own houses or stocks or who work in the city, uh, the beneficiaries are stronger and more coherent advocates of, of, of low interest than the, the people who suffer in silence. So do you think that the uh, what I would shorthand call the Bernanke policy of allegedly trying to support employment and prevent recession is effectively a tax on the lower paid part of the workforce? Yes, and, and as I argue... Although the central bankers strenuously deny it, the ultra-low interest rate policies have contributed in large measure to the rise in inequality in recent years, something which the central banks take no responsibility. I have to say, I, I, fear, I, I, I fear we may agree on this. Yes, yeah, it's fine. I, I'm, I don't mind agreeing. <laughs> Can I ask you, do you believe there is such a thing as a natural rate of interest? Yeah, I mean, that's a moot point. I think it slightly depends on what one means by a natural <laughs> I'm being like Clinton. <laughs> it's what you mean by a natural Yes, rate. yes, yes, yes. In the 17th century, you know, I cite John Locke, the philosopher, who was also, as you probably know, responsible for determining the, the gold content of, of sterling. John Locke talks about letting, I'm not sure if he uses a natural rate, but, but allowing the sort of forces of nature to determine what the interest rate should be rather than legislative fiat. From a 17th century perspective, the natural rate is simply the rate at which money 
is changing hands in the market between winning buyers and sellers. But you have to bear in mind that Locke is talking about a world of gold-backed currency and before you know, the, the creation of fractional reserve banks that changed the story. There is this notion, this sort of academic notion, which is that an economy is in equilibrium and this is the rate, this sort of implied return, society's implied return of on capital. And Bill White, who is former chief economist at the Bank for International Settlements has been having you know, correspondence uh, about this, uh, Jonathan, with, with, with the great Andrew Smithers. Oh, and oh, yes. White's argument is there's no real natural rate because the system itself is a dynamic evolutionary system. So there isn't a sort of fixed natural rate, so to speak. What I use in the book as a sort of proxy for this unknowable rate is you know your your trailing average nominal GDP growth that that gives you a sense of society's return on capital. Sorry, your trailing your trailing economic growth rate. So just yeah, yeah, looking I mean, looking over a number of years up to the present day. What I notice yeah. is you know what one notices is that it's when the uh, policy rates are taken way below the nominal GDP growth rate that that some of the sort of bubbles and credit booms and so forth appear to uh, take place. And and that's not just true of, of you know, US and Britain and, and Europe, but, but as I mentioned, the book of China in recent years. Given that so much of this is unknowable, as you explain, what is the purpose of central banks in setting interest rates? Do we even need them? Should we go back to 19th century America and basically just have banks basically <laughs> operating... <laughs> on their own, the confidence they enjoy from their depositors with no backstop. Jonathan, as you know, <laughs> you, you, there's no point wasting one's time suggesting solutions. <laughs> as, as journalists, we always know that no one pays attention. But it's interesting to know what they are. My friend Thomas Meyer, the former chief economist of, of Deutsche Bank, argues that you don't need to go back to a gold standard. You could have a central bank digital currency, CBDC, backed by government debt, and that that could be the monetary unit, that the interest rate would then be set by borrowing and lending of uh, of a restricted number of these CBDCs or of digital currencies. The problem with this suggestion is you'd have to get rid of the conventional banking system. The banking system would no longer be able to just take money do his employers at Deutsche Bank know what he's suggesting? <laughs> right. You know, instead of the banks creating money through the act of lending, they would have to take the money that already exists and lend that. And if, if you, they could leverage up if they wanted to. So in a way, you'd be shifting from these sort of great behemoths of financial institutions, uh, too big to fail, to a more, um, you know, uh, you know, system dominated by what? FinTech, private equity, hedge funds, ETFs, and so on. Now, it's feasible. I think you'd probably need to more or less bankrupt the <laughs> banking system in order okay. to make that shift. Doesn't, doesn't sound as if you'd achieve much of the definancialization you, <laughs> you yeah, want. I must say, it sounds to me as though the cure could be worse than the disease, especially if it involves nearly bankrupting major banks who might take exception to this uh, line of attack. You're a fan of Hayek and you're very critical of Bernanke, understandably, given what's happened recently. What is the most important 
history lessons we can learn from your overview of, um, of the importance of time value of money? Are there any great Babylonian economists you want to do a shout out to? <laughs> I mean, the world, the, world, the world was a better pace before the appearance of economists. And no doubt, economists, <laughs> we would all be much more prosperous if the, if the business of economics was outlawed. Now, as I mentioned, you know, the, the, the instance, you know, John Law and the Mississippi bubble in 1720 seems to me perfect case study in the dangers of fiat money and manipulation of interest rates and how that feeds through to asset price bubbles and followed by inflation and financial crises. John Law you know, is, is, is really the most fabulous figure in the history of finance, a gambler, a duelist, a murderer, a brilliant <laughs> mathematician. <laughs> and that's just with the currency. Oh, sorry. An economic <laughs> theorist of the first order who arrives in France and persuades the regent of France after the death of Louis XIV in 1715 that he can bring prosperity to France by establishing a central bank, getting rid of the gold currency, printing money and bringing down the rate of interest. He does briefly uh, achieve... <laughs> All three. <laughs> ...everything he promised and, and in the process becomes the richest man who ever lived because he was not only the central central banker, but he also ran the Mississippi Company, which was the you know, largest corporation in, in history. And he had a large, very big stake in this Mississippi Company, whose shares went up 20-fold during the bubble. That was part of the scheme, right? You would transfer the debts you were owed by the king and his government to shares in, in a very far away place of which you knew very little, but you were told was fantastic. He is both this great <laughs> theorist and, and in a way idealist but he's also a promoter his fatal mistake a quality he shares in common with boris johnson is, is he had no attention to detail and he, <laughs> <laughs> he uh his failure to pay attention to detail and i think i would say some flaws in his theory <laughs> in the city bubble. And what's so fascinating, it's unbelievable, is that the central bankers, insofar as they know any financial history, which is, you know, is probably uh, limited, they actually deliberately imitate law. They, they, law is their hero. So it's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's obviously a more interesting character than Hayek, who is your hero. I love law. I mean, I think he's the most fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, if one had to meet one person from you know the past, I probably would choose John Law rather than Friedrich Hayek. Uh, you'd probably, you know, <laughs> have more, have more, more jokes time. anyway. <laughs> that was a long time in finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton, and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week. Yeah.